All right, you ready for this? Ready. Salami, welcome back to the Vice Talks Podcast. This is episode 12, believe it or not. Before we get into our conversation with my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device, I wanted to uh, go through a little bit of housekeeping. First, coming up on Tuesday is our next Device Talks Tuesdays. It's going to be a presentation by Professor John Rogers of Northwestern. The presentation will center around skin interface medical grade wearables and how they allow devices to continuously track physiological status. So wearables obviously are huge. We're hearing more about them. We're get, seeing some really intriguing approvals for, uh, for diagnostics and other uses, and we're seeing financing for wearable companies. So this will be a conversation that you want to hear. It's brought to you by our great friends at Finnegan. They are our sponsors of the Device Talks Tuesday series, so it's great to have them involved. And we'd love to have you there too. Go to devicetalks.com to register. Second, I can't wait. Device Talks Boston will happen on September 24th and 25th in Boston. I'm working on the agenda right now. I'd love to have you involved. If you're interested in participating in the program, please shoot me an email. My email address is tsalemi, that's T-S-A-L-E-M-I at wtwhmedia.com. Again, I'd love to have you involved. I'd love to have you in the room. So back to this episode, this is sort of a, a different Device Talks weekly podcast. One of the uh, gratifying things for me uh, to be that that's that's come from this podcast and from starting Device Talks Tuesdays is uh, has been an Ill, an, an ability to interact with uh, young folks in medtech or people who want to enter medtech. medtech. They're graduating from programs uh, from universities, from biodesign programs, and uh, they want to get into the industry. So we uh, we talked to the executive recruiters a couple of weeks ago. That was a very popular podcast, partly because uh, one student reached out to me and uh, and asked about getting into medtech. We'll be hosting an executive recruiter device talks Tuesdays on June 9th. So uh, look for details on that. Again, if you're looking to get into the industry or uh, find a new opportunity in the industry, you'll have we'll have some helpful advice for you there. But uh, going back to the university world, I came to realize that many of the folks reaching out did not have a, uh, a graduation, did not have a commencement ceremony, and did not have a commencement speaker. So we're going to rectify that today. But first, a quick question for my podcast pal, Chris Newmarker, Executive Editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. I know we have a couple of top stories we want to hit upon, but before we do, I have a question for you. Who was your okay. commencement speaker in college? You know, I, it was the U.S. Surgeon General. I believe it was David Satcher, which would, which would date me. Um, <laughs> so he was talking about like us not smoking and, you know, and making sure to engage in other healthy activity and uh, which, I mean, I guess that's always useful advice. Um, better than if it had been the uh, previous quarter the previous quarter was was uh, bill cosby (laughs) that that would have been memorable that that would have been memorable but uh but i guess getting advice about healthy living is is probably something that that has served you better well we'll try to top the uh surgeon general with our speaker today our speaker today is todd brinton todd is the vice president of advanced technology and chief scientific officer at edwards 
And uh, Todd has a great story. I actually interviewed him for a, another podcast that I've been working on, sort of a, a longer interview type of podcast that uh, I'm still planning to roll out. So this is a different format than what we've accustomed than what we have become accustomed to here at Device Talks Weekly, only because it's a longer interview. But Todd brings a really great story. He entered MedTech in the '90s, around the same time I entered the job force. During a difficult time, during a recession, certainly not the same as today. But but again, having gone through that, it was a, a difficult time to uh, to launch a career. So Todd's going to speak to how he found his way into the medtech workforce, why he decided to go back to medical school, and how he really had to work to make that happen. He'd ultimately find a home at Stanford. He'd lead the biodesign program. He'd become a tenured professor at Stanford, and then he was presented with an intriguing opportunity at Edwards. And uh, he'll speak to that whole decision process and what caused him to take that leap. So so it really sounded like an excellent commencement speech. There's a lot of uh, great words of wisdom in here that I took and I internalized, and I think you will as well. So I was really grateful for the time Todd took. I actually spoke with him back in March or so. So this is sort of a, a COVID-free conversation. We really didn't get into the pandemic because things hadn't really uh, started to materialize at that point. So so before we get into the, the conversation, I do want to hit upon a couple of the top stories at Mass Device, but uh, I did want to just talk quickly about this conversation with Todd Britton. He was very forthcoming. And uh, as, a, as a reporter and as talking to a reporter, reporter talking to a reporter, you must have those conversations where you hang up the phone and you're just like, man, that was, that was a good talk. And it kind of stays with you for a while. Totally. Yeah, sometimes you, you really can get some uh, some some good interviews, and I mean I mean that's one of the best things about this career. I've like talked to some, I've been able to talk on the phone with some pretty neat people over the years. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is one of those conversations, so I'm I'm excited to get into that. But before I do, I want to hit upon the top stories at Mass Device. What's uh, what's the big news this week? Oh, we actually have uh, some big news that isn't related to the coronavirus. Uh, <laughs> you know, we uh, like one of the top stories on our site is actually about a uh, you know striker you know, raising money for, uh, you know, raising about $2.3 billion to finance his purchase of, uh, of Right Medical. And uh, that's interesting, too, because on both sides of the pond right now, there's um, antitrust regulators really scrutinizing the, uh, the, the merger, but uh, Stryker's moving forward with raising the money. So even, even though we're, you know, going through these crazy times, uh, looks like the, you know, the M&A, the trend of all these big medical device companies merging is, is continuing. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if some companies after these troubled times look for more mergers as well. So, I mean, absolutely. You know, so that was kind of the big, big news this week. And, you know, we actually have some um, interesting news related to COVID, which was that uh, Philips has a, a 510K clearance uh, for a uh, wearable biosensor that could, uh, you know, manage, uh, manage confirmed and suspected COVID-19 patients that are in the hospital. And that, that sounds important because, you know, I know that, um, you know, the, the patients in the hospital, I mean, they're, you know, people, health providers are having to check in on them constantly. And, you know, every time you check on them, you, you, you're, you're at risk of potential exposure. So, you know, so having a sensor that could uh, kind of like automatically do some of the work, I mean, that, that sounds like a very useful thing. Things. Absolutely. And I get the sense in, in five years or so, we're going to be, wearable tech is going to be so ubiquitous. We're going to wonder how we got along without it. All right, great. Well, it's going to be a, actually a topic of conversation on our Device Talks Tuesdays, which is coming up on Tuesday. We'll hear from Professor John Rogers about his work in wearable tech. So anyone interested in this technology should go to devicetalks.com. 
Now let's get into this week's conversation. I bring you our commencement speaker, Todd Britton of Edwards Life Sciences. Well, Todd Britton, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Tom. So we like to begin these uh, these stories hearing how folks found their way into medtech. And you've touched upon several parts of the medtech industry. We'll get into your, your, your very interesting career into this podcast. But let's, let's start at the beginning. You began as an engineer, if I've done my research correctly. How did you sort of set upon that path to become a, a creator of medical technology? Uh, so I would tell you that I was uh, heavily influenced by my, my parents. My father was an engineer, his father was an engineer, and his father was an engineer. Um, <laughs> and I remember very, very distinctly uh, driving around uh, when I was uh, finishing high school looking at colleges. And my father, as I was sitting in the back seat with my parents driving around with my sister next to me, said, what do you think you want to do in college? And I said, I think biology and anatomy, physiology is the coolest thing in the world. And he goes, ah, that's great. Fantastic. Biomedical engineering. Done. And I went, okay. <laughs> so that was so, easy. Uh, yeah, it, it was easy. It wasn't. It wasn't as easy to get through. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I really had a passion for, uh, as I said, anatomy and physiology, and I certainly I loved math and and uh, I loved kind of uh, you know mechanical things. And so it was kind of a natural marriage to put those things together. But frankly, back when I was looking at colleges in the late '80s, biomedical engineering was very very new, um, mm -hmm. and there wasn't a lot of programs in the country. And so really, no one kind of knew exactly what it was. And frankly, one of the challenges was that everything that a biomedical engineer could do, a mechanical engineer in mechanical could do better. Uh, anything that was kind of electrical in bioengineering, an electrical engineer could do better. And so it took some time, both for me and, and frankly, the field for to establish kind of what biomedical engineering became. And so I, I knew that, you know, I had a father who was an engineer. I kind of thought, I'll uh, I'll go into engineering and learn about it. And I thought I really loved business as well. And I'll kind of follow my father's footsteps, who is an industrial engineer and went to business school and was an executive uh, in a Fortune 50 company. And I'll, I'll do that. But I, I had this passion for for the uh, more the biological, anatomical, physiology sciences. And so you know, biomedical engineering became a really good uh, merger of those two things. It's fascinating that biomedical engineering sort of had that feel at the time of being a new thing that you wondered, I guess at the time, whether or not it had legs uh, and whether it was something that was an area where that was, well, it spoke to you and was your passion, whether it was the, the necessarily the right practical direction. We, we see so many of those sort of fields emerging today in med tech and outside of med tech and digital health and such, where it just feels like you're on the, the, the early stages or the ground floor of something. What was it that sort of kept you focused and, and, and made you feel that you were on the right path? How do you, how do you stay true to, to what you want to do and let the practical thoughts sort of put those aside? You know, I always wanted to do something that was impactful. I really credit my parents who just said, you know, do something that really matters. And matters meaning matters to you, matters in a meaningful way. Um, and so for me, it felt like, you know, science and, and mathematics and those things were something I could do. And I wanted to do something that was meaningful. So I would say that most of the stages I've had in my career, and there's been, you know, lots of turns and lots of pivots have really been for, you know, the purpose of really finding that I wanted to do something that was impactful. And there was an opportunity to do something more, I thought, more impactful or impactful in a different way. And and the other thing was, you know, again, back to uh, to several 
uh, mentors I've had along the way, which I would say that mentors and, and, you know, my parents are really the, the reason that, you know, I, I made a lot of choices that I made, um, is, is don't be afraid of a new challenge, you know, be willing to actually take risk. Um, as long as you feel like there is something that is interesting to you and can be impactful, don't be afraid. Um, don't let fear drive you and mostly don't let the fear of failure, you know, scare you out of the chance to mm -hmm. do something different. That's so important. You graduated from the University of California in San Diego with a degree in biomedical engineering. Did you know you wanted to go to a larger company, which were just emerging at the time? Did you have an eye towards startups? What happened after you, you graduated? What was your what did your path look like? Yeah. So, you know, in 1992, when I finished uh, at UCSD, was a tough time in the economy, actually. And it was back to that kind of uh, skill time of, of uh, mechanical engineers and electrical engineers were um, being a little bit limited in their capability of finding jobs. But biomedical engineering being new, it was, you know, I'm sure companies were asking themselves, can I really have a biomedical engineer? What do they quite do? I think it's a great field, but from a practical perspective, I have something I need to build in a mechanical engineer, or I need something electrical, I need an electrical engineer. Um, so for me, it wasn't really a choice of big company, small company. And frankly, 1992, it was actually um, getting a job. <laughs> and so uh, I had been an intern at a startup company that I had found on a, on a board. My dad said, I think you should get some experience. And I said, nah, that seems like a good idea. And I met two guys that had, were in a very early startup uh, that had come out of uh, Kodak Labs. Mm -hmm. um, and they were, you know, I got some experience. And, and frankly, jobs were not uh, plentiful, but they were, they were willing to let me do what I thought biomedical engineering was, kind of looking at clinical opportunity and trying to think about, you know, specs for what a new uh, technology would need and trying to build it, trying to test it clinically. Um, there wasn't a lot of that back then. And so they were willing to let me do that. And so that's the first job I took. It was at an early, early startup called Pulse Metric that was based in San Diego. I was an intern there. And it was also an opportunity to do lots of different things. I mean, it was, you know, I remember filing a 510K. Uh, I remember, <laughs> uh, you know, running an engineering group. I remember doing market analysis. I remember going with the first early consumer product that they were working on that wasn't necessarily related to what I was doing. It was a, kind of a first out to, to do some, to, to commercialize. And I was setting up the booths at the trade meetings. I mean, we traveled there with two other guys and we put this little plastic pop-up booth and we stood on our feet for eight hours. And I realized how hard that was to kind of, you know, walk that path and what it took to really actually develop something and get it out to the market. And that was a time when I graduated in 91. So I'm, I'm very familiar with the climate you're talking about. But that was a time four years later, 96, 97, when things started getting crazy with the internet and the economy and, the, and IPOs, even in the medical device field, you could take an earlier stage company public. So there must have been some appeal to you to sort of stay in that field and stay in the medical med tech startup world. But you decided to, to, to go to medical school, which is something someone always, everyone else I've talked to has always considered that prior to going into med tech. And it's sort of, well, I don't want to get in, go into medicine after all, but I'll go into med tech. You went into med tech and then went into medical school. How did that transition come to be? Again, I would say it comes back to mentorship. I had an mm -hmm. unbelievable mentor who was um, uh, Tony DeMaria, who was the chief of cardiology at UCSD. Um, he had been the youngest president of the American College of Cardiology, and he was, uh, he was involved in, in imaging uh, and early technology. And so he, I went to him to do some, some validation of some uh, some of the technology I was working on and the cath lab collect data. And, and he, he kind of turned me on to this world and, and said, look, 
you could you could do this, but but if you really want to do this big, I, I you love this, and and I always thought actually kind of privately about the idea of being a doctor. And he said you should go mm-hmm. to medical school. And I think you know at that point the challenge was you're four or five years into your career. You know, is now the time? And it's interesting because I have people ask me all the time while I'm thinking about it. And I said, don't, you know, if you want to do it, do it. I would encourage anybody who's passionate about it. Don't let anything you hear out there, oh, medicine's changing. If you believe that that's the path that's going to give you the skills and the passion to do what you want to do, do it. There's no time that's too early or too late. For me, it was actually not a direct course. I applied to medical school the first time and didn't get in. Didn't get in anywhere. And it was probably... (laughs) My mom reminds me all the time. It was one of my probably, you know, toughest stretches in my career of kind of disappointment. I, I was having this great job and early in med tech, but I'd found that I wanted to go to medical school. And then, of course, I couldn't get in. I was very fortunate. I applied again the second time, um, got two interviews in the entire country. I think I applied to 35 programs. Wow. Um, all the things you were talking about, you mentioned 1996, mm-hmm. the, the boom. Yeah, so was medical school. It was the all-time highest time, most competitive time to get in medical school in history. And as a result, there was just booming number of people that were applying to medical school, and I couldn't get interviews. And so I had two interviews, and frankly, I didn't hear about anything to the middle of May. Keep in mind that medical schools are generally all full by then. <laughs> and it was actually <laughs> oh, wow. it was actually uh, Tony DeMaria that told me, take any excuse you can, get on a plane, and go out there and tell them you want it badly sit in front of them and say, I really want to go to med school here, you know, have a legit reason for being there. I gave them some abstract that I had submitted with Demaria that got accepted to this, you know, to the American Heart Meetings and said, I just want to update my resume and tell you how bad I want to be here. One of the best advice I ever got from anyone because I got accepted to medical school the following week. And it was another big pivotal change for me. Um, so if, if you didn't I, manufacture that opportunity for an interview, you, you don't think you get into that school? No, there wasn't a chance. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, and it's advice I've given lots of other people I passed on, which I think is really meaningful. Is if you want something, you're passionate about it, you know, don't be afraid to go out and do everything you can. It may not work out, but do everything you can. Don't have regrets. And for me, I was very fortunate. Kind of the stars aligned, and they they offered they offered the job. There's actually a, <laughs> a even more detailed. They I got back on Friday afternoon. This was uh, right before Memorial Day weekend. Um, and I got home from work and there was a message on my old voice machine that said, please call the medical school. And it was the Chicago Medical School. And by the time it was Chicago, it was closed. And I had to wait the three-day weekend to call them back to find out what they wanted. Um, and uh, not an exaggeration, I called in the morning as early as I can, I think, on Tuesday morning. Uh, didn't get a hold of anybody. They said they'd call me back. And when I opened the door to go to work, I ended up... Uh, uh, having a FedEx package in my acceptance sitting outside the door. That's amazing. That's such a great story. I don't want to harp too much on this period, but but was there a moment where you were saying maybe this isn't the right path because it was so hard? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I think uh, absolutely. I, I, you know, I almost changed my mind. And, and in fact, I uh, I knew it was the path I wanted to take. It was the path I thought was right. But I thought that they didn't fit. I didn't fit there. And they didn't want me. Uh, and as a result, I, yeah, I really evaluated. In fact, applying to, to medical school the second time after being rejected so hard the first was, uh, was a tough decision. And you know, of course, I decided to apply to twice as many schools, <laughs> thinking I'll have twice as good a chance. And I was very fortunate. And the truth is, the Chicago Medical School took a risk on me. Well, you know, 
I was a strong student. I had a very strong GPA as an engineer, but not quite the same as as probably people coming from other degree programs. And it didn't make me quite as probably as competitive on paper. And so, you know, I was very fortunate that they saw something and a hunger. Um, and something I would say is I say all the time to to people and management teams is I think hunger is one of the biggest components of success that you look for in people. Um, you know, most people are smart. Most people work hard. The truth is how bad do they want it? What, what, mm-hmm. And why are they hungry? What are they hungry for? Are they hungry for making an impact? Are they hungry for themselves? Are they hungry? You know, so for me, it was a one of the probably one of the most valuable learning times uh, in my career, probably one of the most painful stretches, too. And, and I think people around me would say I wasn't, you know, always in the best of moods during that period of time. But it was defining for kind of what would come uh, in the future. Now, what were you hungry for? I was hungry to do something big. That's the mm-hmm. truth. Uh, I, and I wanted to do something that not wasn't big, like famous big, or I wanted to do something that was impactful, the same thing I said before. And so mm-hmm. I thought being able to do that to patients, being able to do something in medicine, being able to see something you created um, for patients and see it all the way and what it did was going to be the absolute most fulfilling thing I could ever imagine doing in my life. And And, and then, you know, Jumping a little bit forward, as a as a clinical, as a as a physician, as a as a practicing interventional cardiologist, I had this balance still of being able to do it every day and operate and see what you did. But then also, I was working on projects that had a longer cycle, and so you know it was a really really nice balance in a career. It was a busy day, but uh, but I kind of had it, it was I loved it. That's terrific. Did you go into medical school with the idea that you would still? have a life in med tech or were you fully into becoming a physician and, and treating patients? I thought I, I, you know, I knew I wanted to go uh, and treat patients. Uh, mm-hmm. I really thought that was, but I, but I thought I'd probably do, was interested in, in, in my mentor at the time, Tony DeMaria had been an academic, you know, he took care of patients. He was an investigator. He was involved in some early technologies. Um, and as a result, I think I saw that as kind of a, a great model of what I was interested mm-hmm. in doing. Um, I don't think I saw it as, although, you know, I questioned it uh, along the way, whether I would be a 100% clinician. But when I really got into medical school and I was looking at different areas, I thought I could do this all the time. It just seemed, I mean, you know, being there, I just, I, I couldn't wait to practice. I couldn't wait to get take care of patients. It was just, I was hungry for it. So it, it was kind of like one of those things that I knew I always wanted to do deep down, but I wasn't kind of afraid to admit because I thought I knew it'd be hard and I knew it it would take a long time. And then, of course, you know, I took the longest training path you could known to man, as I've been told by multiple (laughs) family (laughs) such like what that many years. But but I liked it. So, you know, I would say that's probably what I was looking for. But it changed over time. You know, I think as you each step of the way, I didn't know necessarily what was coming, but you know, people they ask the questions in interviews. Oh, where do you see yourself in five or ten years? It's always wrong. I mean, it just it, things change, and an opportunity presents itself. And if you're willing to take opportunity and take the challenge, I, I think it can create some incredible uh, new experiences. And your timing was was perfect in terms of heading over to Stanford after your medical school with the emergence of the the biodesign program. Did you know you were? sort of getting into a hotbed of the the two industries that you really wanted to be part of? 
so biodesign hadn't started when I was mm-hmm. when I was looking at it. Uh, biodesign started in 2000. I was uh, coming in in 2000. Um, but when I went back and was looking at, uh, I originally was going to go back to UCSD, and I, I I credit again Tony, but I also credit Paul Yock tremendously. When I um, when I was looking at kind of where I wanted to go, um, I thought Stanford was an incredible program, and and frankly, had always had this kind of private passion to being going to Stanford. My grandfather had gone to Stanford and. And uh, it was actually the original first, here's a bit of trivia, the original first Stanford Indian uh, in the band uh, was my grandfather many, many years ago. And so when I was a kid, he used to take me to Stanford football games. And so I thought, but what a great place to go train. But Tony Demarius said, what do you really want to do? And I said, mm-hmm. I really want to do technology, med tech, academically. And he said, the two best guys in the world are Paul Yock and Peter Fitzgerald. Two of the most elite kind of brilliant med tech people around. And so I, uh, I said, okay. And I went up and interviewed at, at Stanford and, uh, was it also fortunate they took a risk on me? And ironically, uh, you know, I, I got to Stanford and, and started my internship. You know how you start kind of the last week of June, usually, you know, the 25th, I think is the way they used to do it. There's always this crossover. I remember calling the first week because Tony said, you know, you need to connect with Paul Yock. And I called. And I got, I think his uh, secretary said, well, I think I have a meeting for you in October. (laughs) 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 And I said, said, okay, that's not going to work very well. And I thought, okay, and I just kind of accepted it. And you're, you're, you know, I was working a hundred and the old internships brutal. Um, And I thought, I'm, you know, I'll be lucky if I have any time to do this thing anyways. And I ended up calling back and I actually, I think by October, November, I was working on my first project, first company with Paul. It's funny how it all works out. Worked on my first project, and and uh, again another guy that took a huge risk on me, you know, and and taught me a tremendous amount about innovation. Biodesign was starting in 2000. He was just forming the first group of three people, and I had been a biomedical engineer at UCSD. Paul was also forming at that time. Uh, I think it op- started in 2003, 2004. The the uh, the Department of Biomedical Engineering, which hadn't mm-hmm. existed at Stanford. And so he was the first chairman and we'd sit down and talk about bioengineering UCSD and what I liked about it, what I didn't like. And he kind of got input and helped shape kind of what bioengineering ended up uh, as the first chairman of bioengineering, who ironically, Paul's not an engineer, just one of the most brilliant creative and, you know, inventors uh, in med tech. And so, you know, between that time, biodesign was starting and uh, I was there doing my internship and residency. And then he said, hey, why don't you do a uh, why don't you do a fellowship? Uh, it was the third year I met Josh Macauer, another, you know, unbelievable influence and, and, and mentor along the way. And, and they sat down and said, you know, you, you should do a fellowship with us during your training. The, <laughs> the true story is I said, yeah, I already worked in industry for five years. I, I'm good. And they said, no, I think you should do it. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm real busy with my clinical training. And they said, no, we think, you, you know, it'd be a good fit. And I did it. And it, it was probably the second big pivot of my career. It was uh, it had such a powerful effect the way that I saw medical problems and I saw innovation and a good example of how I really fell flat on my face. I uh, I worked the first two or three months uh, looking at some projects I thought I wanted to work on problems I thought I wanted to solve. And I took them to both Paul and Josh, who were mentoring me, and they literally looked at me and said, this is not good. (laughs) This is, in fact, these are not all problems. These are all solutions. And I said, no, no, no. And I actually, embarrassed to say, argued with both of them saying, no, no, you don't get it. 
And ultimately, it took me a little longer. And it, it really, uh, I really started to see things differently. It was like kind of my eyes opened up to thinking about how I could approach innovation. You know, if you're trained as a physician, you're trained as an engineer, we think in the problem world. We think in the solution world. And uh, we don't, uh, you know, we don't, we don't think ultimately about what's needed or what, or what, the, you know, where the, where the, the opportunities are to create innovation because we're immediately jumping our brain to thinking about how you solve a particular set or a constrained area um, and not what could be. But if you take that off the table and think, you know, about what the unmet need is, um, it really changes everything downstream from that. And that, that was a huge change for me. And, Fortunate enough, when I finished my fellowship, uh, both in biodesign and I finished my interventional fellowship and I was joining the faculty at Stanford, both Josh and Paul asked me to stay on and to, and to take over first the graduate course and then ultimately uh, the fellowship and uh, another, you know, another pivot in my career that really had a big influence. Now, now how did that feel to you? I, I saw on the website that you said you're, you described yourself as a big, bit of a square peg in a circular hole being at Stanford, being in the academic world, did you really feel that way at the time? And, and did, did, how did you sort of convince yourself again that this may feel different, but it's something that, that this is the right path for me? Most, most of our, our career, I think we're taught to conform. In other words, you, you uh, want to get into some high school or you want to get into college, you need to conform and you know, your grades need to look really strong. You need to have great scores and your test scores and do what everyone else does and compete on the same criteria. Mm -hmm. um, the same thing's true for medical school. Uh, the same thing's true for internship and for residency and sometimes for fellowship. And the irony is that once you finish, the biggest, and I remember Peter Fitzgerald telling me this as a piece of advice. He said, your whole career, you've been told to conform. Now you're at the stage where everything is about differentiation. Now be different. And I, I really felt like I was a square peg because most of the people who'd gotten uh, to Stanford had done, you know, typical academic research, had K awards for, you know, NIH funded research. And I was someone that was really interested in innovation and frankly, you know, in the startup world and, and, uh, in industry. And that looked very different to an inst most institutions. Now, Stanford, um, is a very entrepreneurial institution. Love it. Now I, I could not be more happy with the, the, the time I spent and the training at Stanford and the relationship I still have with Stanford. But, but I think it was, it's, it's very atypical. Uh, mm -hmm. most is a traditional route of, you know, academic funding. Uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, basic research. It's publication in the most prestigious journals, which it should be. So I was doing something a little bit different, but for whatever reason, and it probably was the mentors, I felt that what I was doing was different, but special. I kind of found my place. Um, I mm -hmm. found people who were like me and that liked some of the similar things that I liked and were driven by some of the same things. And so in that sense, I found a home at Stanford, but I was still in the larger scheme of things at Stanford, still a little bit of the square peg. I mean, I never, never thought in a million years I'd be a physician, never thought in a million years. And most of my friends, I'd be an academic, never thought I'd make it to a full professor at Stanford in a million years. So that's why I said you just never know what's coming. And I love the, I saw a webinar you gave and it was an image, it must have been a Google Maps of, of the Stanford uh, campus. And it had sort of a, a Venn diagram of three circles. One of them was the engineering school. One of them was the, the medical school. And then the, the biodesign program was sort of right smack dab in between the two, touching both circles, uh, sort of indicating on campus that you were really plugging into both. And that would seem to be a really comfortable place for you, sort of did that straddling of those two worlds. No, it was. It was... Uh... Yeah. 
and to to uh, be able to you know uh, operate in the cath lab uh, and at the same time you know come out see patients and walk across the street and sit in with engineers uh, and to, to immediately go to a lecture and lecturing something on a problem or watch a project they're working up I just it, it literally you know challenged challenged me in a in a way that was so fulfilling I couldn't get enough of it. Now it was just, and then, you know, to be flacking around, around in the afternoon and see patients, it was just, I loved it. Uh, and, and I could, I could go on it hour after hour, which was the big joke. But then came, you know, then again came, uh, other opportunities, mm-hmm. uh, you know, opportunity to start some companies, opportunities to, to then, uh, grow and move to where I am now. Well, talk quickly just about the success in the startup world of, of uh, Shockwave. You were involved with, with that company and that's, and that's going well. What was that, uh, experience like and and did it sort of whet your appetite for for more startup success and once we cover that I'd, I'd love to talk about your your move to Edwards sure so uh yeah I so uh, you know shockwave has been an incredible ride uh, shockwave was not the first ride I started a company right out of biodesign that that uh, uh, that didn't make it very long in fact I uh, I thought I had this, uh, you know, great, great problem to solve and heart failure. Uh, it was the first project I worked on and, and, uh, thought I had a really interesting concept and was very fortunate to that Paul introduced me to Casey McGlynn over at Wilson Sonsini. Mm-hmm. Um, he sat down with me and, and said, I think it's a really interesting idea. We were really interested in supporting you. I said, I don't have any money and I really didn't have any money. I mean, I'd been a medical resident. I had two kids at home. I, I, uh, had gotten through years and years of training and he said, well, We'll support you. He introduced me a guy, Jim Shea, who's a phenomenal IP attorney and, and Renzio Shaglin and has done that for years up there. At the time, he was actually at Wilson Sonsini and started his own firm. And they spent hours and hours to me putting together the idea. And I thought, okay, this is fantastic. Here I am being an entrepreneur until the dark day came that we found some blocking IP that it published about a week before my idea. Oh my and it God. really was blocked. And that was disappointing, but the greater disappointment was the bill I'd run up with Wilson since <laughs> And I remember, uh, I remember sitting down with Casey, uh, and saying, I mean, I was petrified. I thought I am done in the Valley. I, I, I can't, how am I going to pay this bill? And Casey was amazing. He said, well, I'm going to write this off on one condition. And I thought I'm done. I never show my face. And he said that you bring your next project. And so that was, that started a, a incredible relationship I wow. have and still wow. have with Casey. Um, and I started a second company was with a physician, Alan Mishra at Stanford. Uh, we founded it in DeNovo Ventures, funded it. Jay Watkins, another big influence in my career, another incredible mm-hmm. mentor who became, uh, you know, our, on our board and, and, and mentored me. And, and we, you know, we raised money, you know, venture capital money for it, took it forward. And I, you know, learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes and, and ultimately, uh, it was an interesting project, but, but I had to shut that down. Took money from, uh, from friends and family and, and, uh, as well as venture and it didn't work. And that was, you know, another one of those failures to have along the way that was a teaching moment. But ironically, then I, then I ultimately founded Shockwave with, uh, John Adams and Daniel Hawkins, two, tr- you know, great, great balance. You know, you talk about an engineer, a business guy and a doctor. And that one, that one, you know, was a tough one out of the gate. It was 2008. Took a long time to get it going. It almost died multiple times. I can tell you three distinct times that I said, we're done. We're cooked. And, uh, amazingly through, you know, everyone's in a lot of other people's efforts. Uh, it, it, you know, made it out, you know, and, and these, these projects, you know, 
you get the opportunity to learn, but you also get the opportunity to, to work with and learn from so many people. And, and, uh, you know, first in, in uh, investor in that was, uh, uh, well, the first actual real investor in that was very fortunate was my father. He wrote a check. Oh, wow. Nobody would. Uh, we couldn't get money from anybody. We were 18 months in, no money. And because of that, a few people wrote some small checks. I think we raised, might be off, but like $180,000. And we ran it out of a small little uh, office in Sunnyvale for a year and a half. And I used to go down there at night and work on it with one engineer after I'd done clinical cases all day. Uh, I dragged my daughter down there at night. She colored in the corner and we worked on it. And uh, and then Fred Mall was very fortunate. Another big influence in my life. Fred Mall came in. And he brought some investors and was became chairman and worked with us and taught us. And then, you know, we we brought in uh, investors. Another Sofanova, so Antoine Papernick became a big influence for me. Uh, he really took all the risk to back the project and uh, raise money. And you know, among Jay Watkins, Fred Mall, and Antoine Papernick, that became the core on the board all the way until we took it public. So uh, it was a great ride. I'm I'm just amazed at how, and it's not just you, but anyone who starts these companies, how there are those moments where you're you're thinking I'm cooked, I'm done, and <laughs> somehow you, you find a way you find a way through. And I don't know if it is hunger, desire, luck, all of the above, but uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if I could take that sort of roller coaster ride <laughs> of of being completely at the at the, the the bottom and then and then slowly finding your way out. What is that like? I mean, is it is it a slow process of recovery or does the door open suddenly and you're like, "Oh good, we've got another 5 or 6 months." How, how do things turn around? No, it, it uh it's probably different every time and and yeah. um I, I was I was fortunate cuz I loved the job I was doing every day. Uh I spent, you know, I I, I to say and and others may feel differently, but uh I wasn't a part-timer at Shockwave, but I mean, every bit of my brain and soul was in, was in Shockwave. I was out there most nights at times and we even, we moved it out, you know, farther away. Um, but I, I loved practice and I loved operating. I loved taking care of patients. I loved teaching. I loved biodesign. I was working with, you know, uh, fellows and, and graduate students all the time. So for me, it was, it was kind of, um, I've explained it to other people like diversifying my portfolio. It was, uh, I was working on something different all the time. Um, it wasn't that my heart wasn't in all of it, but some days you, you know, at any point in time, something's going to be up while something else is down and you got to have the staying power to kind of go the distance. And, you know, there was lots of times I'll tell you that shockwave was going well, thank God, because something would have happened clinically. And, and, you know, I was in a tough business. I'd have a complication in the cath lab or, a patient who came in who who died and and uh, mm-hmm. I needed Shockwave to pick me up because it, you know it, in a sense it was this whole balance of kind of the ecosystem of uh, of innovation and uh, patient care. That's a great point. Well, let's talk about this this final exciting stage joining Edwards. I mean, how, how did this come together? Did you see this as part of a plan? Did you see that my next step will be joining a larger company because it's not a, a typical move? How did you come to join Edwards? So the answer is no, no, and no. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't see Edwards at all. I, I was very fortunate to start interacting with Edwards probably four or five years before I came to Edwards. Uh, I'd been down here and, and, and been invited to give a visiting lecture. I had done, we'd done some work with them. They started coming actually to a program that we started about five or six years ago at Stanford, this executive education program called Managing Innovation. 
that Josh Macker, Paul Yop, myself, and Jay Watkins started. And Edward started sending people about four or five years ago, sending teams to, to kind of train in, in the innovation strategy that we were all talking about and we'd experience in our startups. And as a result, I started interacting with folks at Edwards quite a bit, but I never anticipated ever that uh, I was looking for a full-time role at Edwards. And it just, it kind of happened. I got a phone call, I guess, about a year and a half ago. Uh, and they said, you know, we're from Headhunters. And, and, and you know, I'd been, been uh, talked to Headhunters many times before about different things, but this one seemed a little different. Didn't initially know who the company was, actually. Hmm. Um, and in fact, uh, to the credit of, of the person doing the search, he didn't, he didn't uh, actually ask me if I was interested. He asked me who, who, about other people. Um, and, and whether I thought that they fit and, and, you know, other names you could get for the search. And I was really happy. Uh, you know, this was just prior to Shockwave's IPO. You know, we didn't know if we'd make it out, but we were certainly hoping that we would be in a position to, to take it public. Uh, practice was thriving. I was really in, still continue to enjoy working at, at Stanford and teaching about design. It was my 14th or 15th year of running the fellowship program. I, you know, I love it, still love it to this day, and I still go up and teach uh, periodically. So it was an interesting timing. And the more I first, you know, heard when I first heard about it, I, I kind of said, no, great opportunity, but I'm, I'm, I'm not looking. And, and for whatever reason, back to that same thing I said earlier about pivoting in time, they talked me into a sit down with Mike Masala and uh, a short meeting turned into a much longer talk. And uh, I walked away from that meeting going, wow. But I have to say, I, you know, I thought about we talked for, for significantly longer. And this was not a this was not a few days. This was months over the discussion. And frankly, it, it, it took some time. It was an incredible opportunity to really do something impactful uh, on a larger scale. And at the end of the day, that was kind of what ultimately was the most important to me to go to an organization that I could do something really impactful. Um, and I was, at, you know, a stage that I, it, that I knew where Shockway was. In practice, I knew where I was. I certainly wasn't ready to leave practice per se, but at the same time, I really was excited about Edwards and really excited about the people at Edwards and what 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 we could do together. Um, and frankly, what Edwards had already done being really, you know, the most in my mind premier cardiac cardiology based company. And so, you know, ultimately, I I assessed. I have to be honest. I I thought for a period of time, things are pretty good where I am. So why take that risk? And frankly, you know, am I ready to, to take this kind of challenge? And frankly, I remember having uh, giving a lecture one day to my fellows on uh, fear of failure. And I remember walking out of that and saying, look, I got to practice what I preach. And so uh, I decided uh, to, to take the leap to leave Stanford and everyone. I talked to lots of people, same mentors I mentioned before, and all of them were, you know, great advice. My wife was incredible. She uh, she was willing to, to support the move. And she even said, you know, you just made full professor at Stanford. I mean, you know, tell me why you want to move. And when I explained it to her, she said, I'm, I'm honestly, this is not, she said, I, I get it. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to support you. So we don't make decisions uh, in, in isolation. You know, I'd love to say that it was it was a group effort. It was a lot of people's influence and, and you know, a lot of family support to make the decision to move. But, you know, I'm, I'm one year in now and uh, I could not, you know, couldn't be happier with the decision. Tell us a bit about your uh, your day to day. Are you it would seem to be if you're a larger uh, a C level exec at one of these companies, maybe you're you're not rolling up your sleeves like you would at Stanford somewhere else. But. How uh, how involved? What are your your duties precisely, and, and sort of how involved are you getting in in the innovation? 
I wouldn't have taken this job unless I could roll up my sleeves. As the chief scientific officer, I have kind of a broad uh, responsibility across the organization in innovation. The uh, As you know, there's four biz- active commercial business units at Edwards, uh, surgical, critical care, uh, THV, and uh, TMTT. Um, and so there's a fifth business unit, which is a non-commercial business unit called Advanced Technology, and I'm also responsible for that group. And that's really the kind of the future, where, where we're going, the white space outside in the future, what could be next? And that really was what caught my attention and, and how Mike caught my attention was the opportunity to, to really build the future. And we say, it, you know, in advanced tech, innovating the future. And so it's a, it's a combination of unbelievable engineers, uh, core capabilities in science and, you know, and, and preclinical testing, really brilliant clinical regulatory expertise, strong and again, core innovation engineering. And it was the chance to also to shape that organization and move it towards the not just the engineering driven capabilities that it had a long history of having, but also trying to bring and, and blend it with this capability for looking at the unmet clinical need with this strong engineering talent. And so, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate we, we're, I'm responsible for really looking at internal development, but I'm also fortunate that I'm also responsible looking externally. So evaluating uh, technologies that are out there that are interesting and exciting that we might be interested in partnering somehow with and ultimately bringing into Edwards. And so it's kind of this internal external opportunity to look and then to try and build value for for Edwards, but also for patients um, to get things that are exciting that are out there and accelerate their ability to get into patient care really in unmet clinical needs. And last question, you've, you've got a great perspective uh, on the industry. What is your assessment of medtech and advanced technology going forward, both within Edwards, but also outside the field? You're looking around, you're seeing what, what's coming. How excited are you about the future? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pumped for the future. I think that we are on, you know, there's been some, I love the history of, of medtech. I love some of the unbelievable innovators that have, uh, you know, the John Simpsons and, and, uh, Julio Pomaz, uh, you know, Tom Fogarty's, these, these, they're all legends. And, uh, you know, the history of what they created along the way. But the opportunity now is, is not just to, to build kind of traditional mechanical devices and catheters. It's really a chance to transform with the way that digital and sensors and, and implantables and, and disposables are all kind of merging the information age. I think that the, there's going to be a whole nother generation of, of, uh, John Simpsons, Tom Fogarty's and Julio Pomaz and Paul Yox for that matter that are going to come, but are going to think a little differently. The, the irony is the solutions will be different, but the, but the, but the problems will be the same. The unmet need, the ability to identify the unmet need to really understand what patients, the system, what physicians really need and what will ultimately drive value for patients and for the system. That is what ultimately uh, we'll set the framework for some very creative different solutions that will be different. They'll be more evolved. They'll be more exciting. They're probably going to be more personalized. Um, but the core capabilities will be the same. Well, I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice. And I, I really do enjoy hearing these MedTech stories. And you tell a great one. So, Todd, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's a real pleasure. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you, Todd Brenton, for sharing your story and for delivering such an excellent quote, unquote, commencement address. I hope uh, our listeners walk away with an idea and some notion as to how they might find their way and survive and succeed in the med tech industry. 
And uh, one way to do it is to uh, keep listening to this podcast. We'll be putting out another one next week. I'd love to hear your uh, your thoughts on this format, this longer interview format. I've got some others already recorded. We'll be rolling them out. And uh, we'd like to, to know how, uh, how you liked it. Also, uh, please don't forget that we've got uh, Device Talks Boston happening on September 24th and 25th. Again, that's in Boston. If you have any thoughts, you can reach out to me. Gave my email at the top, but here it is again, T Salemi, that's T-S-A-L-E-M-I at WTWHmedia.com. You can find me on Twitter at MedTechTom. You can find me on LinkedIn. If you have a story to tell, you have some news to break, you'll want to reach out to Chris Newmarker. Chris can be reached via email at cnewmarker at WTWHmedia.com. That's Newmarker as in a new marker. You can also find him on Twitter at Newmarker and also on LinkedIn. And finally, do us the favor of sharing this podcast episode. Please put us up there on LinkedIn and Twitter. You can tag Chris and myself. We'd love to be part of that conversation. That's it, folks. Thanks for joining us. Tune in next week. We'll have another great Device Talks weekly podcast for you.